Well, good morning. You may be seated. My name is Colin, one of the pastors here. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Well, this is our last of our five-week Advent series that we've been looking at hints and types, foreshadowings of the gospel, of the coming of the Lord Jesus, uh, not just in the Old Testament, but in specific in the book of Genesis, inspired to do so by one of Matthew's comments at the beginning of his gospel, where he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets, all this being everything in the lead up and the running to the first coming of Christ. Uh, and I was thinking about it in between services. I don't know if we've told you um, where we're going next as far as the teaching series are concerned. So Christmas comes early, I guess, for second service, not first service, because they didn't do this for them. Uh, but here's where we believe the Lord is calling us to go next. We would like to do a study of first, second, and third John. And so that's going to come immediately after the new year. These are epistles written by John to the churches. And essentially, it's what does it mean to live an authentic Christian life, to receive truth and to live it out in community. And so we hope this series and pray that this series would be uh, very practical and has a lot to do with what should discipleship look like here at Mars and what does discipleship look like in the church at large. Uh, then we'd like to look at Habakkuk, to go back to the Old Testament, and then back to the New Testament again, to the book of Acts. This is the way forward. We'll be in the book of Acts forever, because that's, <laughs> that's a long one, uh, but it's very rich. And here's what we're hoping to do. Here's where we believe the Lord is leading us. There is a theme to all of these connecting together. What is the church? What does it look like? It should be a season for us as a church, a body of believers, to juxtapose ourselves against what the apostles taught, what the Holy Spirit was doing in the first century church, a time of reflection and encouragement uh, to be the church. So that's what we're hoping and praying for as we look on the horizon. So Merry Christmas. And don't, <laughs> I would say, should have told the first service to come to the second service, but I don't know if that makes any sense at all. Well, we've been looking again, as I said, at the gospel in Genesis. We've seen how God has promised to undo what the fall had done to Eve. He said to her, through your descendant is going to come one, Messiah, that's going to bruise or crush the head, the serpent that led humanity astray. Then we looked at how the gospel was foreshadowed in a very peculiar dream, the one of Jacob in that ascending staircase, sometimes called Jacob's ladder. And we noticed how Jesus said, hey, that dream was about me, not just that I was going to come down from heaven and return, but that I am myself the way to heaven. Talked about how he is that staircase that bridges heaven and earth. And then last week, we considered the gospel in the story of Noah, and that how by faith in Christ, we are secured from judgment, that we don't get out of judgment, out of consequence of sin, but that by faith in Christ alone, we get through it. And all of these things are keeping with the Advent season, so that when we're thinking about the promise that God gave Eve so long ago, that we messed things up, but God was going to fix it. That ought to have given us hope. And if you're looking at Jacob's ladder, his staircase dream that God himself was going to bridge the gap and he would descend to us, that should give us joy. This isn't something we were going to build, do you remember? It's not even something we could ascend on our own. And so God is promising to us that he is going to not only make a way, but be the way. That brings us joy. And then recognizing that as sinners, coming in contact with God's holiness causes this fearful dread of judgment. And yet, through the Son and his 
sacrifice on the cross, glorious resurrection three days later, we can be safe in him. And so that offers us a sense of peace. Well, today, in the last one, we're going to look at the story of Abraham and his son, Isaac. Now, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. We're going to connect that story with something that I don't think it's often connected with, and that being love. How in the world is that story about Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, connected to love? Well, I think that at the foundation of that story is love. And if you take love away, the story begins to fall apart. And that in that story of seeing a father sacrificing a son and seeing, if you recall the story, because we're probably pretty familiar with it, the, fam, the, 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 the ram in the thickets coming as a substitute for the one being sacrificed. We can clearly see the types and shadows of Jesus here and love, hopefully, as we'll see, as the backdrop. So let's dive into it. And the way I want to dive into it is by asking a really strange question, which is this. Um, who do you think it more likely to give birth to a son? A woman pushing 100 years old or a virgin? <laughs> right? And the answer for us is like, neither. <laughs> Why? That's pretty weird, right? Sometimes the Bible presents us with these really strange, peculiar situ- uh, situations just to prove that God is the one in charge. Let's see what that means. When Abraham was old, and I mean really old, like, Christian 100 years old, God came to him and made him a promise. The promise was this. He said, I will bless Sarah, his wife, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I'll bless her, and she'll become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, this is really big news for Abraham because if you remember at this stage in his life, he had not yet had a son through Sarah. He's got an older son named Ishmael. We know that episode and all of the conflict and turmoil and sorrow that led to his household. Sarah has still not yet had the pleasure of having a child, having a son. And yet, Abraham was promised by God through his descendants, God was going to bless all the families of the earth. He was going to bless his descendants. He was going to bless him. In taking matters into his own hands, we get the Ishmael story. But finally, at this stage in life, at 100 years old, Abraham's hands are completely open to God. You do your thing. And God says, didn't need your permission. I will. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to open your wife's womb. And you're going to have a son. And she will become nations. It's the same kind of promise God would later give to Jacob. If you remember from two weeks ago, Abraham's grandson, blessings coming to Jacob because God loves him. They're coming to Jacob, blessings coming to Jacob's descendants because God said he would bless him. And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through these people. Why? Because ultimately Jesus is coming through the descendants of Abraham. So when God said in verse 16 of chapter 17, I will bless Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, I will bless her, and she will become nations. He is reiterating the promise and showing Abraham the next steps that are coming in this long promise that didn't start with Abraham, but actually started all the way back with Eve in this whole descendant Messiah promise. But here's the problem. Sarah is nearly in the centenarian club. I think that's how you say that name, right? That club is when you're like 100 years old. And AARP is like, didn't think you'd make it this long, but we still have offers for you, (laughs) She's at least in her 90s. So, of course, Abraham's going to respond in this way. God, I love you. I trust you. But he collapses, falls to his face, and not in worship, but, verse 17, he laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And Sarah, who is 90 years old, shall she bear a child? Now, husbands, pay attention, because Abraham did it right. He told God or the public, or the overhearing ear, his age first, and then 
revealed his wife's age. But here's the point. We need to know how old they are at this point in the story because as each year ticks on, it becomes less and less and less likely that they would have a son. So at this point, perhaps Abraham has even let go of the idea. But in some small ways, keeping in the back of his head, God made a promise. He's good and faithful and is able. I wonder what God is up to. Finally, God tells him what he's up to, and he laughs. Abraham fell to his face. But here's the deal. God's not the author here. Abraham's not the author here. Time is not the author here. God is the author here. So Abraham can laugh all he wants, but God's deadly serious. And so he reiterates this promise to Abraham in verse 19. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And for her part, Sarah didn't really believe him either. Later, the Lord is reiterating this promise. Sarah overhears it. She's inside the tent, I think, and the promise is being spoken of outside the tent. She hears it, that she's going to become pregnant. Narrative picks up Genesis 18, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, just like Abraham did. Laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, in other words, Abraham ain't a spring chicken either, shall I have pleasure? Will I have a son? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And here is a question for the ages, one that we should be asking ourselves in every difficult situation we find ourselves in, when it seems like an impossibility is coming in direct conflict with a promise that God has made, is anything too hard for the Lord? Obviously, the answer is no. He spoke the world into creation. His spirit hovered over the chaotic formlessness of the deep to bring about life. So if God can do that, then surely his spirit could hover over a barren womb and, much later in the story, a virgin's womb to bring about life. God's going to bring Abraham and Sarah a baby boy. With that baby boy comes joy. With that baby boy comes numerous descendants who eventually will lead to Jesus, who will bless all the families of the earth. You know, it's interesting to me, thinking about this story and, and Abraham and Sarah's reaction to the reaction that Mary gives when Gabriel comes to announce to her something similar. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, Gabriel tells Mary. Um... There's a difference between how they react, but it's not the initial reaction. When Sarah is told, hey, you're gonna have a kid, Sarah said, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? And when Mary is told, you're gonna have a kid, she said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? You know what the difference between Sarah and Mary's reactions are? Mary didn't laugh, but Sarah did. And I think there's something there that I'm not quite sure. I think it has to do with faith. I think it has to do with trust in uh, God's promises. Mary has an advantage, right? She is generations. She's seen, she can look back in her people's history and see generations of God's faithfulness to her people. I think that tells us a little bit about remembering um, how God has been faithful to us in the past so that we can go from when God tells us something insane laughing to when God tells us something insane later in life and being like, makes sense. God can do it. Let's get back to Abraham. Fast forward a year in the story. And in Genesis 21, verses one through three, we read that the Lord visited Sarah as he'd said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who was born Sarah to him, or whom Sarah uh, bore him, Isaac. So there it is. God kept his promise. You see, very early on in this unfolding of God's redemptive history that God is always going to keep his promises. Always. 
You might ask the question, like, why wait until past the age of childbearing when it comes to Sarah? And the answer is to demonstrate to the world that it's God, not us, who saves. There's no possible way that a 100-year-old woman could have had a kid, and yet she did, and that's how God's choosing to save the world. Same question could be asked of Mary. Why a virgin? That doesn't make any sense. This just seems like weird myth. No. The reason God sent his son to an earth through a virgin womb is similar to the reason that Isaac is birthed to Sarah, to show you, to demonstrate to the world that it's God, not us, who's going to save, and he saves by miraculous means. You see, in God's kingdom, promises are kept no matter what. In God's kingdom, promises are kept no matter what. And no matter what the circumstances look like, for Sarah, it was her inability to conceive. For Mary, it was the fact that she was a virgin. God is still going to provide. And this is very different than the kingdoms that we're used to living in, isn't it? In the enemy's kingdom, promises are made, but they're intentionally broken. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that demons don't keep their promises. In our world, in, in the world of our relationships and families, people make promises, but sometimes they can't keep them. It's not that they don't want to, it's that they lack the ability. And try as they might, you're still left with a broken promise shattered in front of you and the sorrow that comes with it. But in God's kingdom, promises are made and they're kept even when it seems, especially when it seems impossible. So, you would be forgiven if you are a Bible reader and for the first time you come to this story, you continue on to Genesis chapter 22, knowing in the back of your mind that God has gone to miraculous lengths to give Sarah the son Isaac through whom the Messiah would come, only to find out that God is going to command Abraham to do this. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer, th offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I shall show, tell you. Question. If God promised Abraham blessing, and that blessing was going to come through his son Isaac, why is God now asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Well, the Bible actually just straight up gives you an answer, and we're indebted to the book of Hebrews for giving us that answer. If you go to chapter 11, you're in this massive hall of fame of saints, and the author of the book of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, so there's the answer. Why is God doing this? As a sort of test. When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and uh, he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Isaac, uh, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And you can kind of see how the test that Abraham is being given unfolds through the rest of the story. When I say test, well, it's late enough in the semester. Most of us are fine with them <laughs> because they're in our rear view mirror, right? When I, when I say test, what we typically think of the word test is something you cram for, download information on, cross your fingers that you get a C or above. This is something of an obstacle that you have to pass in order to receive a reward. And if you fail, it's kind of a filtering out system and an institution is going to start over with somebody else. That is not the kind of test we're talking about here. There's another way of looking at testing as a way of proofing or reinforcing or demonstrating that something was there the entire time, to manifest something that might be hidden or mysterious when the rubber meets the road or pressure is put on, the only thing that bubbles to the surface immediately is whatever was latent at the beginning. And that's the kind of test we're seeing with Abraham. When this pressure begins to build on Abraham in this conflict, which we're going to talk about, between loves, the love of his God and the love of his son, what's going to come to the surface? And the author of Hebrews says what comes to the surface is true faith. 
So this proofing, this refinement, we see Abraham step by step by step having a faith that is demonstrated in palpably true. Would Abraham actually obey God? God says, take Isaac, sacrifice him. Would he actually do it in this test? And the answer, of course, is yes. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. There's two things I want us to pay attention to, two small little details. Abraham rose early in the morning. You know what I would hit five times that morning? The snooze button. And say, well, technically, God, I still woke up. This is determination that we see in Abraham to not only be obedient to God, but to display a kind of obedience or faithfulness that uh, has a sense of urgency behind it. And second, he cut the wood for the burnt offering. If you were looking for a way out at this point, you could have pretended like you forgot it. And yet, Abraham is faithful in what this day or the next few days is, is going to mean. So, is Abraham actually going to obey God? The answer is yes. But the story continues. We continue to see the test. Would Abraham renege on his obedience to God? And the answer is no. Because in verse 4, we read, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Three days later, from that morning, he woke up early to get ready to sacrifice his son. He's still in it. 72 hours, two evenings that you think are probably going to be your last with your son. At what point would you, would I, in those three days, have turned around and been like, Maybe it was a really bad dream. Maybe it was whatever I ate and I thought I heard God tell me to do this. For me, if I'm being honest, it wouldn't take me three days. It would take me like three minutes and I would be talking myself out of this. But Abraham doesn't renege in his obedience. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Remember that part. It's really important. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went together. Well, the next question you could ask is, would Abraham at any point doubt or question God? Like, what's going on in his mind? And the answer is no, because as we continue to read the story, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, Abraham said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. There's no doubt or no question in Abraham's mind about God's ability to provide. Well, would Abraham waver? Would he back out at the last minute? Even that answer is no. You continue to read. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an offer there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. If ever there was a moment to waver or back out, it's now. Why didn't he? A few reasons, I think. One of them we know, and that comes from, again, the author of Hebrews. He draws our attention here to a hope that Abraham had in however this would end. Hebrews eleven nineteen says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, part of the motivation, part of the thing that's allowing Abraham to endure in his obedience is hope of resurrection. Very, very important. And perhaps Hebrews sees something that we so quickly walk past in the text, 
that when Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him, he didn't tell the servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship and I will come back to you again. Did you notice that? Abraham told the servants, the two men that were with him, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He says, me and my son are gonna go over here and worship and Abraham knows exactly what that means. But he told the servants, we will both come back. He doesn't say, I alone will come back. So there is a depth and a richness to the faith that Abraham is displaying here. But Abraham never had to go through with it. For just at the moment of sacrifice, the story continues, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then in an act of provision, the story concludes. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld, or behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Instead of his son, there is an exchange made possible by God's provision. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So the foreshadowing of Jesus here, I hope, is very clear. And we'll just cut to the chase here. If the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God, then all people, all of us, are, outside of Christ, sinners who are bound by sin as Isaac was bound by rope, and we are laid on the wood of death as Isaac was laid to die. But because the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, then Jesus is our ram caught in the thicket who was offered up instead of us not as a burnt sacrifice as the ram was, but on the cross. And here we see a great exchange. The thicket stuck ram for Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for you. That is like the major big takeaway that we should always draw from this story. Jesus Christ was born to die so that those of us who are spiritually dead may be born again. The whole point of the incarnation of the Son of God to take in a virgin's womb and make the life was so that he would die. And in his resurrection, we who are dead in our trespasses and sin by faith alone might find newness of life, eternal life, regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit. So every time you see a nativity, the joy that comes over you ought to be matched with the sober realization that the only thing in that child's future is a cross and that the only thing in the Savior's future on the cross is his resurrection. If it gives you effective or emotional whiplash, good. That, it, that's, that's right, that's what it should bring us to. This incredible intersection of a right recognition of how horrible our sin is and yet how powerful God's grace is stuck together in the form of a cross. And that our faith might be rooted, as it were, in the air of an empty tomb. That, please walk away every single time you see the story of Isaac. This is the story of Jesus. 
in, in microcosm, centuries before. I'm sure we're familiar with that kind of a approach to the text. I want to do something else, though, this morning. Because I also believe that if you, if you hang out with this text for any period of time, you start to notice also that not only is there uh, hope of resurrection, not only is there fear, and by fear we mean not this like, Abraham's fear wasn't that he was gonna like get hurt. His fear was a respect of God, right? But there's also at the core, you could call it the foundation, love. And there has to be. When you're looking at this story along the whole line of scripture and redemptive history, because there is an explicit reason for why Abraham acted out this miniature drama of redemption, and it is fear. That's what the angel of the Lord said, right? Genesis 22, verse 12, back nine of it. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you didn't withhold your son, your only son from me. Not fear like emotional distress, like you're afraid you're gonna get hurt, but as reverent respect a right recognition of God's holiness and our sinfulness, of his righteousness and our unrighteousness, of his power and our weakness. But there's also, and this is not often remembered, a reverent respect of God must include a right recognition of his ultimate insurpassable love. Because if, if, if fear of God means a respect and a recognition of who we are and who he is and contrasting who we are and who he is. And John tells us in 1 John chapter four that God doesn't merely love, but that God is love. This sounds weird to us, but your fear of God must be saturated in your understanding of his love or else it's not God that you fear. It's not God that you respect. It's some other kind of God, but it's not the true and living God because God is love. This is, I believe, the implicit answer for why Abraham could have acted out this drama so faithfully. It's because at the core of his respect and at the root of his hope for resurrection is his love of God and that he loved God rightly. Because if he didn't love God rightly, he would not have had faith in him. And if he didn't have faith in God, he certainly wouldn't have respected him. And if he had neither faith in God nor respect in him, then there's no hope for resurrection. At the core is love. Why would I say that? What do I mean? Look back at verse two. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Love is at play in this story. Your son whom you love. Abraham loved Isaac, right? For good reason. That's his boy, for starters. Second, he's a miraculous gift from God. Third, God promised he's gonna bless his descendants and the whole world through this boy. So there's a lot to love about Isaac as far as Abraham's concerned. But didn't Abraham also love God? We're told explicitly he loved Isaac. We're not told explicitly that Abraham loved God. I can't show you in Genesis chapter two, verse, or 22, verse whatever, that it says Abraham loved God. But man, it's hard to deny from the text, isn't it? Isn't that implicitly pulsating to us? Abraham left his country. He left his family because God said, come. Abraham repented toward God habitually. Abraham lived for God. You're not doing these things unless you love him. You know, interestingly, too, the first time the word for love here, uh, echav, or the first time you see that word uh, in, in, the, in the Bible, <laughs> that specific Hebrew word for love, is right here. So there's almost like a finger snap of, hey, pay attention. There's something about love that you should see here in this story. And not only is it in this story, but it's right at this critical moment in Abraham's life when he's being tested with sacrifice and burnt offering. But at the same time, hasn't God revealed this about himself in Hosea? For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Pay attention, these, these keywords are important because it helps us meld together this book. It's not just one isolated thing. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, separated stories, it's all connected, it's all inter interwoven. 
God is calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. And yet, God says, I'm not really interested in sacrifice and burnt offering. In principle, what I am interested in is your loves and your knowledge of who I am. I'm love. So I'm gonna go out on a limb here and suggest that love is really, at the end of the day, what God was looking for in Abraham. Because love is at the root of both reverence and faith. But what happens when love of God and love of neighbor, or in Abraham's case, what happens when love of Yahweh and his love for his son collide? And they seem to compete, or they seem apparently to contradict. Who takes precedence? Like two magnets of love being pushed together. Which one's going to flip to the top? Which one should? Well, we have a very important guiding principle here, and the Lord Jesus gives it to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we'll look at the version in Matthew. Jesus is asked, hey, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, that's easy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are interconnected commandments that are not meant to be teased apart. So here's the ideal. Our rightly ordered love is to see God atop all of our other loves, and our love of neighbor is the kind of love that is selflessly lost in itself. Now, apply this back to Abraham. He loves, his loves are rightly ordered, we could say. He loves God, and then he loves Isaac. He clearly loves God holistically, but he loves Isaac too. And God recognizes that and acknowledges it and names it. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. So here's a question. Is Abraham really loving himself? Or is he really loving Isaac like he would love himself? To take that love of neighbor principle. If he's sacrificing him. Like how many of you in here are like, I would love to be sacrificed as a burnt offering. And I'm crossing my fingers that one of my neighbors takes me up on that desire. No, none of us want that. So what's going on here? How would God do that? And what does this communicate to us about love? I think you got one of two options. Here's option number one. Sometimes allegiance to God requires us to suspend biblical ethics. From time to time, God can issue us a command, and then he can retract it. And then you can say, wait, no, no, yeah, do that. Because, hey, he's God. He can do what he wants, right? Who are we to question him? Maybe he's got a good reason. Ours is not to question, it's to do. Ultimately, our allegiance is to God. And if he says, I know I told you not to murder, I know I told you not to do that, but this time it's okay, just trust me on this one, wink, wink. That's just uh, the way God is. For all my love, of that Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. This was his position on this text, and it is not a good one to take. Kierkegaard said, Abraham's willingness to kill owed to a suspension of the ethical. Why? Because Abraham placed his faith in the end of what God was doing, or the point, or the purpose, or the ultimate overall point not his immediate ethical concerns or what Abraham knew immediately was right. Now, before you think that's highfalutin philosophy and has no basis in real life, and I was using words, big words or whatever, don't raise your hand, but I wanna ask you this question because I wanna show you how practical the implication of what Kierkegaard is saying. How many of you were dumped by a boyfriend or a girlfriend who said, God told me we had to break up? Right? I'll say, I will raise my hand. <laughs> Here's the deal. God probably didn't tell you that. He probably actually told you three months earlier not to date him to begin with. But now because you want out of this relationship, here comes the God card <laughs> and you drop it down. I'm gonna give three more examples and they're gonna get more and more serious. There is a, a guy in our region who ran a young earth creationism ministry. 
I'm not commenting at all on young earth creationism here, but only the behavior of this man. And he wanted to build a theme park and a ministry center in Alabama and uh, was not able to raise the funds in a timely manner. So what he began to do was withhold income tax, and he stopped paying taxes altogether for years because in his mind, he's justified. God told me to build this facility, and I can't get donations, so what I'm going to do instead is not pay taxes, and I'm going to take the revenue I make from not paying taxes to build up God's kingdom, supposedly. Even though Jesus like, literally tells you to pay taxes, and then so does Paul, this time, God said it was cool, I didn't have to. I think he's still in jail. He might be, he might be out now, I don't know. Uh, in the area I grew up, outside of Chicago, there was a very famous independent fundamentalist preacher uh, who shortly after I left high school, the years after I was out of high school, moved away. It, it turn, turns out he was trafficking a 15 and 16-year-old girl across state lines there, having a relationship with her. It's okay, he said, God told me this was okay. And then, very famously, Jim Jones, the cult leader. He suspended the ethical. He suspended the Sixth Commandment. He shall not murder because he thought he was following what God desired. Ideas have consequences, especially bad ideas that are attached to God's word. If you don't believe me from those stories, ask Adam and Eve in their temptation. Ask Jesus at the end of his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, at the end of his temptation. Granted, this is because I love Kierkegaard. I just don't like that part. He argued, you're not supposed to follow Abraham's example here. There's a special one-time event. It's meant to shock you. You're supposed to learn something about God and his commandments. But I guess God could suspend his ethics if he wants to. Okay, that's one option. Don't take it. Because I think what's, What's really being communicated behind this story is something more profound and beautiful, theological, Christ-centered. Ultimately, it's not pointing us to what we do when it seems like God's commands collide. Instead, it's pointing to what he does, what God does. And God does this. God will reconcile the conflict of loves by providing his son as a sacrifice. And this is what I mean by that. We are to love the Lord our God holistically. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. This is what we were designed for. This is what we were created for. This is what we were yearned for. You can't do this on your own. You cannot. In a fallen state, in the fallen state of this world, uh, you, you can try to love God with all of your heart. But in doing so, you will always slip off one way or the other and end up hating your neighbor. Or you can by yourself try to love your neighbor and in so doing, kind of distance yourself from God to the point where you're loving your neighbor so much you turn around and look at God and don't recognize him anymore and hate him. But I'll tell you where both of those extremes ends, in hating God and hating neighbor. Because if the opposite of the greatest commandment is to love God with all of we are and to love our neighbors as ourself, I guarantee you the intention for the enemy for every human being is to hate God with all that we are and to hate our enemies as we loathe ourselves. That's what the enemy wants. And God says, no. I'm not going to show you. Oh, he is. He showed us through Jesus. But I'm not going to demonstrate for you how you're supposed to love me and your neighbor as yourself. I'm actually going to collapse the collision between what you perceive as contradictions at the cross and then empower you to do it by my Holy Spirit. You see, to love God truly and to love your neighbor selflessly is the ideal in the Christian faith. And these two things are not impossible or incompatible because God, just at the very moment of choosing to love him holistically, by thrusting a knife down into your son is the same God who stops that from happening and says, no, I will provide. I will provide a ram in the thicket. I will provide my son at Bethlehem in a manger. I will provide the son of man on a cross to reconcile the contradictions that sin creates in our lives.
You can't truly love God while hating your neighbor if you're a believer because the cross makes a way. And you can't hate God to selflessly love your neighbor because the cross has made a way. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do both. And in doing so, we unlock the secret behind God's blessing that he promised all the way back in Genesis. In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You can be a blessing. You will be, you must be a blessing to the people around you. By being restored image bearers of God who love him and love them. The manger contained more than forgiveness for your personal sins. It did not contain less than that, but it contained much more. In the manger is the power of God to reconcile all loves to himself and destroy any contradictions of love that sin brings to the picture. God is love, John said in the beginning of his gospel. He said that that love dwelt among us and that they, would be, they beheld his glory. If that's the case, then think about what that means theologically. Love itself was betrayed. Love itself was abandoned. Love itself experienced injustice. Love itself experienced torture, crucifixion, and death. Are these not contradictions? Is it not the case that love should not experience these things? And yet, he did. So that our loves and us as redeemed lovers of God and neighbor could endure betrayal, could endure abandonment, could endure injustice, could endure even death in the promise of resurrection to the new heavens and the new earth in which no contradictions of love would ever exist again. So how do you experience such enduring love? And this is where following the example of Abraham, is advocated to us by the author of Hebrews, submitting your will to God, and furthermore, submitting all of your loves to the lordship of Jesus. You see, disordered loves as they are in our heart place above God anyone or anything else is the ultimate desire in your life, and that makes us into what the Bible calls idolaters. Finding in creation what we're supposed to find in the creator and giving to creation what we owe the creator worshiping the thing rather than the maker, right? That's Paul's argument in Romans 1. And the fruit of idolatry then is sin, it's Romans 3. Falling short to God's glory, to our purpose, desiring in our hearts what is unholy, plotting in our minds what to, how to achieve unrighteousness, acting in our bodies and speaking in ways that hurt us, that hurt others, that condemn us before God. To cease sinning on your own is impossible. To refrain from plotting unrighteousness in your own is hopeless. Because at the end of the day, this is why God was so much more concerned with your heart and your desires and your affection than he was with sacrifices and burnt offering. Sin is not ultimately what you do. Sin's not even ultimately what you think. Sin is ultimately what you desire. Because what you desire, you plot to get, and what you plot to get, you act to get, right? So if you, desire, um, if you desire sin, then all day long you're going to figure out or over a period of season of time you're going to think about how to get that sin. And if you think about how to get that sin, one day you're going to grasp and get it. But if God has your heart and you desire him above all else and you think about him and his word above all else and the actions, the activity of your hands, your tongue, your feet, all of these things will be to the glory of God. Why? Because then your loves are not disordered, and God is ultimate, and creation is second. You have a kind of heart that beats in time with God's desire. This is what God promised through Ezekiel, chapter 36, 26 through 27. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. The ordering of this promise is so important. Look at it again. What does God promise believers first? The ability to obey his law or a new heart? The new heart must come first because when the new heart comes the Holy Spirit's there, 
when the Holy Spirit forms and hovers over the new heart, creating in it new desires, just like it created life out of the chaotic, formless void in Genesis, just like he created life out of a barren womb, just like he created life out of a virgin womb. He's creating life of new desires in your heart of flesh, and then you are able to do good. Repent from sin, turn to Christ, receive a heart of flesh, one that beats in time with God's heart, one that has properly ordered loves, one that finds it undesirable to love anything but God highest and image bearers like yourself. I know when we come to this season, this time of year, the things we're thinking about are not our properly ordered affections. But it's funny, kind of a culture we live in, materialistic, gives us time for pause of what is most important. What is most important in this time of year is to remember that the promise God made all the way back in Genesis to Eve, that her descendant would crush the head of the serpent, to Jacob, that this descendant would be the ladder that connects heaven to earth, to Noah, that in this descendant, in Jesus, we would make our way through judgment. And finally, here in Isaac, that he would be the exchange that gives us new hearts. That is what we ought to remember during our Christmas time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given your son as a gift, that this was not plan B, it was the plan all along. That even though we are sinners, you are good and faithful and able to stay true to the promises that you made all the way in the beginning in the book of Genesis. Not just to destroy sin, but to redeem sinners. And so, Father, we thank you that even though we deserve to be bundled on the wood, you provide a ram in the thicket. And Father, we ask that in this complicated world of sin, the kind of love and affection that Abraham had to lead him to give us this type of your son coming on the cross would also guide our lives as well. That we would love you above all things and love others as ourselves, knowing that in your cross and in the glorious resurrection of the son, you are defeating contradictions of loves that sin has introduced to your good creation. So Father, we love you. We thank you. We remember your son in this season, in whose name we pray. Amen.